welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder. In Shakespeare's Macbeth, the second witch stirs the pot and encants, by the pricking of my thumb, something wicked this way comes. Meaning the drop of blood from her thumb was a premonition or a foreboding of something nefarious. This week, we are covering the Elizabeth Holmes case. There is breaking news in this case. Absolutely, the verdict is in. That's right, and what is it, Laura? It's guilty on four counts of defrauding investors. Each count carries a heavy maximum 20-year sentence. That's major. So today we're going to talk about Theranos, talk about Elizabeth Holmes. We've done a, a, an immense amount of research on this, but also we're bringing in David Cole, who's kind of our legal expert for Ivy League murders, to talk about the verdict and how they reached it. Absolutely. And talk about the sentencing and, and what this is going to mean for Elizabeth and for her future. And for maybe ramifications in Silicon Valley at large. Yes. Because this is really, she's kind of being held up as an example, I think. Yes. Silicon Valley. Uh, yeah, a lot of people are looking at this and to see what happens. The fall of the young female tech giantess has garnered a media storm, so much so that blondes in black turtlenecks have become meme-worthy. And as you pointed out, Laura, a Halloween costume of choice. Holmes is the husky-voiced, wide-eyed brainchild behind Theranos, the company that promised to revolutionize blood testing. It was a great idea. According to Holmes, her invention, the Edison, was the, quote, iPod of blood testing. It was sleek and it was sexy. The problem is, it didn't work. Once valued at $9 billion, Theranos' blood machines were like a beautiful racehorse that couldn't make it around a lap. And Holmes kept on taking bets on it. And we want to take this time to thank our new Patreon members. We want to thank Anne-Marie W., and my dear cuz, Zach L. Yeller, you know I love you. And Donna G. and Leslie M. And we really appreciate our listeners so much. And we need to ask your help now. It isn't free to put these episodes out. And we really need your support. And we really want to ask our listeners if they would consider becoming a Patreon supporter for this podcast so we can continue to put out quality podcasts and bring them to you. 
And Tara, what are we going to offer the Patreon listeners? Well, we have some really fun Patreon bonus episodes coming your way. And this also includes some PI tips from me and, and some stories. Those are things I'm going to provide for our Patreons. So it's going to be fun. Yes. And we're also going to take Patreon listener suggestions and do some of those cases as well. Absolutely. And listen, if you can't contribute financially, we believe me, we really understand. But please do us a favor and hit that subscribe button and leave a five-star review and tell a friend. And also, if you do want to become a Patreon, it's pretty easy. How do you do it, Laura? You can just go to patreon.com or patreon slash Ivy League Murders and then just type in Ivy League Murders in the search bar once you're on Patreon. And now back to the Theranos case. Really, this is the view from 10,000 feet above. And let's start with Elizabeth Holmes herself. Elizabeth was actually a direct descendant of the Fleischmann East Dynasty. She was the great, great, great granddaughter of the founder. So she grew up actually... This is Fleischmann's yeast, like yeah, the packets, so you buy in the yeah, packet. Yeah. So she grew up wealthy in D.C. She went to private high school, boarding school in Houston. Very accomplished. She took Mandarin in high school. Very intelligent. Went to Stanford. Basically, our story begins in 2003 at 19 when Elizabeth drops out of Stanford. She has this idea for Theranos and she goes for it. Exactly. And her idea was absolutely brilliant. Her whole whole idea was that through a tiny drop of blood, this little pinprick on your finger could be analyzed instantly for 200 diseases. Holmes and others saw the potential in this technology as being able to revolutionize medicine. Absolutely. I mean, if you could get rid of needles and for some of us who only maybe get our blood drawn a few times a year, this may not be a big deal, but there are people who have to draw their blood daily. Daily or to be able to test at home. Let's say you had a machine and you could really keep an eye on some chronic condition you have. and People are diabetic, right, all kinds of issues. So this really was a revolution free idea. However, there's lots of revolutionary ideas, but whether or not you can make it work is an entirely different story. Whether they have legs is right. Elizabeth Holmes had styled herself as the next Steve Jobs. She even wore his iconic black turtlenecks. I mean, she wore this. This was her uniform that she no, wore she, she actually researched where he where Steve Jobs got. It was an Issey Miyake, the designer, black turtleneck. And so she found out where he, he, these Issey Miyake black turtlenecks were purchased and got her own. A little bit of a fangirl thing a little going bit on. Of a, yeah, I'm actually interested in these Issey Miyake black turtlenecks myself. Quite a piece. <laughs> so she really did style herself after Steve Jobs. And Holmes inspired this sort of cult-like reverence from very powerful men, including Henry Kissinger, Larry Ellison, who is CEO of Oracle, and George Shultz. The former Secretary of State. Exactly. So these were just a few powerful men. And but, I mean, Betsy DeVos. I mean, lots of people supported her. We know that Silicon Valley is kind of based on speculation. And this she was a very convincing person. She was. And, and Elizabeth Holmes is very, not to talk about physical appearance, but she's very striking, very attractive and very convincing. 
her sort of unblinking resolution about her own product really helped to convince other people. In other words, she was definitely, I think, a true believer in her own story and her own invention. Well, I think she possessed a charisma that we often see in politicians and actors where they really almost, you know, it's more than her appearance. It's really her presence where she just owned a room where people flocked to her. Of course, her media campaign was insane. By 2006, Holmes had raised $6 million just on her idea alone. And Laura, you told me that Theranos, even at that point, the company Theranos was evaluated at 30 million. This is just on an idea, folks. Right. No, it's absolutely unbelievable how convincing she was. And I have to interject here and just say that Sarah and I are in Western Massachusetts. So if you hear any noise in the background, there's a bird feeder right behind us. <laughs> there is. There's literally like a peleated woodpecker who comes to our little, right. uh, a so cute. No, a downy woodpecker. Sorry. It's so cute. It's not bad audio. Yeah. It's actually... <laughs> well, it is kind of bad audio, right. but that's okay. It's worth it. <laughs> and as she continues to cultivate this image, her next move is to move her headquarters to Palo Alto, where Facebook is headquartered. No, she took over the Facebook building. Oh, Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. Yep, yep. And in 2009, Sunny Balwani, who became her COO. So tell us a little bit about Sunny's background. I didn't go too deep into Sonny's background, except I can tell you that he had made a lot of money in tech. So he was a multimillionaire. And he comes in and he puts money into Theranos and he becomes the chief operating officer. Now, we find out later it's not really, nobody kind of knows at the time, but he's in a relationship with Elizabeth. Well, I think people intuited it. People who worked there knew that they were more than just, yes, they did. I'll push back on that. I'm oh, they knew that. that they were involved. I, I think they hit it extremely well. I don't think anyone knew until much later. And I also think it's interesting that, that later at trial, she blamed Sonny when she had this company going for six years before he was even in the picture. But what they essentially did at this company, Elizabeth and Sonny together, they were very, Sonny especially, but they were both bullies. People who were working at this company kept coming to them. These were scientists. These were lab workers. And they were people, they would come to them and say, guys, this is just not working. Like, we have to, we have to figure this out. We've got to work on this. These beautiful, slick little machines, the needles were breaking in them. The glass was breaking in them. Mm. The blood that was taken was getting all over the place. It was dangerous. It was not working. And neither Elizabeth nor Sonny, people would come to them and say, look, this isn't working. And they would just say, you just don't believe anymore. And they would get fired. They would get threatened by lawsuits if they disclosed any of this information. It was a real campaign of like, you either believe us or you're out. Yeah, I think you made a good observation, Sarah, that it was almost like a religion. Cult. A cult. You were kind of in it or you were the enemy. And in your in your right, it was a great idea and it didn't work and they pushed and pushed and pushed. And as it didn't work and they were getting more and more contracts for this, they had to keep fudging things to make it look like it worked. And that's when the real deception began. And they were really presenting to investors. There would be a prototype and they were presenting to investors. This is up and ready, ready to go, ready to go. And it really was, I believe that's the fraudulent 
part of it, essentially. It came to the point where they basically had Walgreens executives coming in and taking blood tests in this Edison machine, and they're taking the blood out the back and bringing it to an offsite lab. Absolutely. So, I mean, this is complete deception. Also, one of the other observations, too, is that what their employees would say was that there was a very different atmosphere from the front offices, what they call like the carpet offices, to the tile offices. In other words, the front offices were all slick. Everything was totally organized, looked amazing, blah, blah, blah. The labs were an absolute S show. There was just messes spilling. It was terribly run. And Laura, I read also that in the book, too, it describes how Elizabeth Holmes also got some very amazing people to work for her. There was a lot of Apple employees who left their Apple stock on the table to go and work for Theranos. If the employees... Like I said, if they objected or they wanted to move on, which a lot of them after a while wanted to because they understood that they were making something that didn't work and they didn't want to co-sign it. But when they would try to leave the company, they would have to sign all kinds of NDAs. She also had a very powerful attorney, David Boyes, who would also threaten the employees if they did tell anybody anything. So he was a very high paid attorney. But instead of getting his normal huge fee, he actually had Theranos stock. Stock, right. So yes. He was paid in stock. He was paid in stock. But he was a bully. He was like her strong arm. Oh, they put people under surveillance. Oh, I I mean, mean, it was pretty incredible the lengths they went to. Young kids at new jobs and they're going out to their cars and they're being tailed in the parking lot. Really scary stuff. So that's the atmosphere of working at Theranos. and (laughs) Not too pleasant. But again, her campaign of attracting, and I think it's called influence fraud. I'm not quite sure of the phrase, but it it basically, if you get enough influential people together to kind of co-sign your product, which is exactly what she did, she would have Henry Kissinger, who, who were all the big players. Rupert Murdoch, Sarah, yeah. Jim Mattis, the DeVos family. These are big time players. And then once you get one of these people, it's easier to attract. We've seen this in so many other fraud cases. I mean, once you get one of them, other people want in because they say, if Rupert Murdoch thinks this is a good investment, then I'm, I want in. And don't forget FOMO, the fear of missing out. So a lot of these people were kind of like, oh my God, this is the next huge thing. Well, what if I had invested in iPhone, what would have happened with that stock? So in other words, you get this excitement about this product. Unfortunately, they still knew that the product was not working at this point. But in 2010, Theranos was evaluated at $1 billion. So in 2013, they were getting a little bit strapped for cash. Right. And so both Elizabeth and Sonny knew that the Edison was not working. They were still hurting for cash. So they signed a hundred million dollar, quote, innovation deal with Walgreens. So what they promised Walgreens was this. People come in, you have this machine, you prick the finger and you get all your tests right from the Edison machine. Right. In actuality, this is exactly what happened. Walgreens in dozens and dozens of their stores, they set up. Right. They start a rollout. They start a rollout. People come in and they still have to do venous draws. In other words, not the finger prick one. 
although Elizabeth is still selling them that it's all being tested by Theranos, it was not. They outsourced labs from all kinds of other companies and used those labs, that traditional technology that Elizabeth was so down on, what she was going to revolutionize, were the ones that they were actually using to test the blood and not well either. There were a lot of false positives. People would get really alarming test results back. And the danger, to my mind, the fraud is one thing. To my mind, the really ethical misstep here is that if somebody has syphilis, right, and they go and they get a false negative for syphilis, as one of the Theranos employees said, and they think they don't have syphilis, guess what, guys? There's going to be a lot more syphilis in the world. Or if you have an early cancer and it doesn't get detected and that metastasize, mm. that's a huge ethical breach in my, right. in my book. And this is one of the ways that this was spotted because a lot of people who have thyroid problems who have regular blood work done were noticing huge differences in their regular blood work and then having to have their blood work done at another lab and noticing the discrepancies. So basically, this rollout was done and you're going into Walgreens and having traditional blood work done. There was no difference. Exactly. So it didn't work. So she's taken magical thinking to a whole new level. Yep. It's pretty outrageous. Outrageous because yeah. she's made a hundred million dollar deal on on an idea that in in a box and none of it works. All right, so we could talk about. Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos for days, I swear to God. But the reason we're really doing this and we're doing it kind of we're doing it kind of on the fly a little bit here is that we really do want to have David Cole, who is our legal expert, come in and talk about kind of a complicated legal battle. This has been ongoing for the past few months. I'm sure everybody has read about this in the newspaper. I think the complicating thing is proving intent. Did Elizabeth Holmes know that she was defrauding people. And here is David Cole, who is our legal expert and a fantastic hotshot lawyer from Texas to break it down for us and describe exactly how they reached that verdict. It is so good to have you back, David. It's fantastic. How's everything in Texas there? Cold. Uh, we had balmy weather for weeks in December, and then it dropped below freezing all of a sudden. So we are all eyeing the electric grid nervously. Absolutely. Given... It's cold here, too. It's about 18 degrees. So, yeah. yeah, it's not fooling around cold. But we are so happy to have you on the show, and we're here to talk about the Theranos slash Elizabeth Holmes verdict and get your thoughts on it. You are our legal expert. My acclamation of the masses. <laughs> David Cole is a very renowned attorney in Texas, and he has his own podcast called The Coal Mine. It's a wonderful podcast that really breaks down legal issues from a constitutional point of view, and it's well worth listening to. So we're really pleased to have you back, David. And Thank you very also- much was a classmate of Sarah's at Harvard. That's right. Class of 90 at Harvard. That's true. We're the yeah. best now and still class of 90 or whatever the class year was. I can never remember it. We have um, the best class. And actually, after we talk about Elizabeth Holmes, I want to talk about a couple of our classmates who are really impressive. So anyway. There you go. All right, let's so. get right to it, David. So we, we waited for this verdict for quite some time. You and I communicated during the wait, and you did explain that it's not unusual to have a long wait on a verdict such as this. But maybe we could get right into the verdict. So she was found guilty on 
four counts? Yes, there were there were several counts in the jury instruction in the verdict form, and the jury did three things. It found her guilty on four counts. Basically, it was 11 blanks, and you're supposed to put guilty or not guilty in each blank. And so they put guilty in four of the blanks. They were unable to reach a verdict as to three of the counts. And after some encouragement from the judge, they just were unable to reach a verdict. So those are blank. And then the remainder of them, they put not guilty. The distinction between the guilties and not guilties was the underlying reason for the alleged fraud. The ones where guilt was found involved uh, intent to defraud investors in Theranos. The ones where guilt was not found were ones where the intent was alleged to be uh, that to defraud patients, people that might be using the test to make their own healthcare decisions. So that seems to have been a distinction that was material to the jury when it went about evaluating the evidence from this long trial. So, so the difference is in the intent. So they're saying it wasn't bad intent with the patients? Yes, it wasn't the, I mean, these offenses that were alleged in this case have a couple of different intent requirements for all of them. It can get very metaphysical. But the problem with the intent as to those particular counts was the idea of an intent to defraud patients. Something about that just didn't work with the jury. Maybe they didn't see that as a scheme she was part of, or they didn't see what she did as part of that scheme, but something about it just didn't hang together. We may never know exactly what it was. That is very interesting. And in some ways, I think proving intent to defraud was an uphill battle for the prosecution, was it not in this case? It's tricky on purpose. I mean, the statute is very precise about you have to have intent to say something untrue and you have to have a reason for doing it. It has to be part of a, trying to defraud somebody as a result of your untrue statements. And there's no question that Elizabeth Holmes could have used some better judgment about a lot of the things she said. But why was she doing it? Was she trying to get money she wasn't entitled to? Was she trying to trick people into uh, signing up for her services? Was she just clueless? And you heard a lot of different stories about that in the trial. That was a big thrust of her testimony when she took the stand towards the end of it. So that seems to have been something that, in fact, the jury was interested in and did take very seriously in its deliberations. And now on the count where there was no verdict reached, will those just go away? Will the prosecution retry her on and, those? And what are those counts where they couldn't reach? Good question. Let me pull them up. I have them here. Yeah, so all of the, there were four counts, so there are 12 counts. I said 11 earlier. There are actually 12. Three without verdict. One, two, three, four with guilty. And then one two, three, four, not guilty. And the not guilties all use language like this, blank, guilty, not guilty, of the charge of conspiracy to commit wire fraud against Theranos paying patients in violation of, and it names a federal statute. And so they all in some way use that language about paying patients. The ones where guilt was found use different language. They say the charge of conspiracy to commit wire fraud against Theranos investors in violation of, and it names the federal statute. So that patient investor distinction, that's the language they use. And you can see it just clearly all the way through the 12 questions in the verdict form. See, because to me, this is interesting. I think what happened is Elizabeth Holmes got caught up in her own mythos, that same mythos that Silicon Valley, fake it till you make it, et cetera, et cetera. To me, aside from the fraud, which I think she definitely did 
defraud her investors, some of whom were very, very big, well-established investors and people in this world. But I think the ethical thing for me is that when it crosses into medical decisions, Mm -hmm. that is where it gets dangerous potentially for people's health. If you give somebody a false positive or a false negative on a medical Mm -hmm. test, you're really playing with fire. I think that's that is what gives this case a little more sizzle than your average. Look, if, is if this matter. was just a, the new iteration of the iPhone, right. big deal. Okay, it doesn't work, and somebody defrauded somebody for it. It is a big deal, of course, but it's not affecting somebody's no. health. There's not a yeah. medical aspect of that. There's kind of a backward-looking and a forward-looking questions at this stage of, of how that fits, how this issue about patient safety fits into everything. Backward-looking. At least what I've read, I didn't follow this particular piece of the testimony when the trial was going on, but it appears that the testimony at trial about individual patients having been tricked in some way was somewhat confusing. It may have been the technical nature of what was received, but the fact is Elizabeth Holmes was talking to the market. She was talking to investors. Sure, indirectly, people saw that. But she wasn't really sitting there in the medical examination room saying, hey, get a Theranos test. She was a couple of steps removed from that. And I think that may have been part of what the jury's thinking was. But we haven't heard the last of that part of the case, because now that we have this guilty verdict on these counts, the next question for the court is two questions. One will be, is there some reason why the verdict should be set aside? I'm sure there'll be a bunch of motions about that. I doubt anything will happen there. The second question- What does that mean to the layman? Two things happen now. People file post-verdict motions. Motions to the court say, all right, now that we have a verdict, now that the jury has made findings, let's do things. The prosecution is going to say the court should enter final judgment of a sentence of X number of years and a fine and restitution. And here are the reasons why we think you ought to do that. The defense will say- two things. It will say there should be no judgment at all because here are a number of things that we think were fundamentally wrong with the trial. And if the court is inclined to enter a sentence, it should be much lower than what the prosecution requested for X, Y, and Z reasons. And the question about the verdict and accepting it are questions of law that this court has already dealt with. I doubt he's going to be interested in changing his mind about that. The sentencing phase is another kind of mini trial. Witnesses can't, it's up to the court how to proceed with it, but witnesses can testify, investors can testify. And to the point we were just talking about, Evidence can be considered at sentencing that wasn't admissible in the guilt or innocence phase. Very, very interesting. Right. The fact that patient health was involved, maybe you didn't prove fraud. You didn't commit crime as to that, but you're still in the health business. And the fact that it could have affected a lot of people is going to be something that weighs in favor of a longer sentence when that uh, issue comes before the court. Could the prosecution at that, obviously during the sentencing part, can the prosecution put somebody on as like sort of a victim impact? Hey, I'm Johnny Q from Ohio. I took a test. Uh, it tested negative for syphilis. And then I had ramifications. Yeah. Let's they say, absolutely can. Okay. They absolutely yep. can. Now, I think they learned in the trial that kind of testimony may sound better in the office than it does in the courtroom. They have to be careful how they present it. And some of that testimony is done you know, in written form by affidavits as opposed to live testimony. But absolutely, I would expect the prosecution to try to really drive home to the court that this is about health care. That does make a difference. And look, here are some specifics, maybe not 
criminal acts in and of themselves, but they illustrate sort of what was going on and why within the range of acceptable sentences really ought to be on the longer end of it. What is the time frame from now until sentencing? It's up to the trial court. They have discretion how they handle it. It's going to be a substantial proceeding like everything else has been. Both sides are going to you know, bring make strong arguments of law, bring in fact witnesses. Ms. Holmes will bring in witnesses that she couldn't have testifying guilt or innocence, character witnesses, friends that say, you know, she's trying to do the right thing in her life now. They're going to consider evidence about no, her family. No, no, no investors, it. though. I, I don't think Holmes is really good. I don't think we'll be having a lot of investors. And the court, every sentencing involves that struggle. I mean, there's sort of a moral, There's, there's he did something wrong, but then, okay, what do we do now? And the defendants bring in friends and family and say, look, I'm a decent guy. I just made a mistake. And, and the court has to figure out how to put that in context. Can I ask you, what is her bail? I honestly don't know. Before we get to that, I know where you're going with this. No, I'm just curious because I know she's out on bail. Yeah. So she'll be out till sentencing? Is that? So generally in a case like this, they would be out, the defendant would be out through sentencing and assuming there was a sentence and that it included imprisonment, there would then be a date fixed, particularly because she has a small child, for her to present herself to the Bureau of Prisons. That would be at some point after the sentencing hearing. We saw that, for example, with Jeff Skilling. It took a few months to have the hearing, and then he had to present himself a couple of months later, and the media followed him up there and took a bunch of pictures. I just wanted to ask you, you had sent us some calculations. If you're a betting man, David, how long of a sentence do you think she'll get? I think the longest will be about 10 years, and it's somewhere between five to 10 years is my bet. And that's not just based on David throwing darts at the wall, but Federal sentencing is extremely technical. There's a detailed guidebook. I sent you guys a copy of it. It's several hundred pages long. You have a chart, and on one side of it is the what's called the criminal history of the defendant. Here, that's going to be low. This is her first offense. And on the other side is the offense level. And there's a whole calculation you go through to come up with a number for the offense level. Prosecution argues it's high. The defense argues it's low. Where those two criteria intersect on the chart, the criminal history and the offense level, there's a range of months of a sentence. And that's sort of the presumptive starting place is that range. That range comes out to around five years, give or take, for these individual counts. And then the court makes other decisions from that point. That seems very low. Yeah, considering that each of these four counts could carry a maximum of 20 years. That's true. But sentences that are for similar activity generally run concurrently rather than consecutively. So in other words, if I do, if I defraud people four times about the same company and have four 20-year sentences, I'm not going to be required to serve 20 years and then 20 years and right. then 20 years unless it's an unusual set of circumstances. And the guidelines say it's supposed to be done concurrently. You serve all the sentences at the same time with some adjustments if there is a reason why it should go up a little bit to reach some desired maximum level of, of sentencing. So that's it, it, your thing is true, but it's really more of a way outer limit than it is a realistic guide to this sentence. Is it going to be a golf course prison? Yeah, are that's there going to be, the gonna be yoga prison. classes in this prison? Yeah, so <laughs> you know, the Bureau of Prisons keeps its own counsel about that sort of thing, but she's clearly uh, not physically dangerous. She's not going to start a gang in the prison and try to like have a violent overthrow of the prison leadership. She she's doesn't have a criminal history. Security risk go. She's pretty low. I don't know. She's pretty charismatic. Who knows what she's capable of? You know, of. we'll see what happens. But they, uh, they, they, they've got plenty of people in the Bureau of Prisons that they have to, that, you know, have tried to blow up airports and things. They keep a very close eye on those people. Less violent offenders tend to get sure. a little bit 
yeah, less yeah, yeah. demanding security. We might see a whole bunch of black turtleneck wearing prisoners in a, a few <laughs> oh, yeah. years. I don't think black turtlenecks are ever going to quite get back in style the way they were. That that jumped the shark, as they say. Laura, I see you still keep wearing lots of black. <laughs> so you and your you channeling that Elizabeth Holmes still. So I know I'm I'm still I'm looking. I I, I don't really want to drop five hundred on the Issey Miyake one. Yeah. Or Actually, you might be Elizabeth Holmes. You might be in disguise. And, <laughs> hey, I'm uh, a blonde. Some good David. Vibe, yeah. I mean, hello. You know. Oh, sorry. I yeah. Good yeah, point. yeah you wear white all the time, so that's a different different <laughs> well, look. Laura and I were chit-chatting, and we were thinking, gosh, you're married to a hotel billionaire, hotelier who's a billionaire, and we're just wondering if she's going to stick around for the sentencing. Or Yeah, I, I think she'd be a, a crazy to take off because she's about as well-known a person as there is in the world right now. And, you know, where is she going to go? There are only so many countries that don't have extradition treaties with the U.S. and China. Yeah, well, we'll see about that. Particularly given that she has a small child, I would be very surprised. Who knows? Well, it's it's an interesting saga with a lot more to come, and I we'd love to yes. chat with you again when the well, sentencing no, this, happens. This sentencing is good. Sometimes sentencing is just kind of a pro forma. The offense is committed. There's a mandatory minimum, like there is in a lot of drug cases, and and you just sort of it's the way it's going to be. The judge doesn't have a lot of discretion, or it's a very severe crime and it's just obvious it's going to be a life sentence or a very serious term of imprisonment but white collar cases are different because they do involve a lot of money but they don't involve physical violence so that's different than a lot of the cases the system handles and at the end of the day what matters in silicon valley okay yeah she was found guilty but what's going to happen to her and if it's a long prison term that's going to have way more effect than simply the fact that she was found guilty of something if the sentence is not very substantial and you bring up something interesting too this now has bigger ramifications on silicon valley because the whole idea of fake it till you make it is now i think that cools that off that gives that a bit of a chill as yeah well, there's a, there's a general chill and then i think the more sophisticated look is going to be we have a roadmap. I think if you pull the string back from this verdict form and look at the specific representations made about these transfers, these wire communications that led to her being found guilty, and then compare them to the specific statements that the government cited on the ones about patients that didn't work, someone's going to write a little paper that compares those two, and that's going to be a manual for what you can and cannot do back of the envelope in Silicon Valley. And if you don't read that and you just start talking, you're proceeding at your own risk. You will at a minimum have been expected to read that to make good decisions if you're leading a company. And I think the disappointment, I think also for a lot of young women, a lot of women in general, is that you had this wonderful golden opportunity as a woman in tech to really make some mm -hmm. serious strides. Okay, so I wanted to give a big shout out to our classmate, also class of 90, Susan Wojcinski. She is the CEO and creator of YouTube, mm -hmm. and she is a female superhero in tech, as far as I can see. She's and a rock star. She's my next door neighbor freshman year. We lived in the fifth floor of Canada C. She lived on the fifth floor of Canada D. I probably talked to her every day. And Sarah, I ran into her at our fifth reunion. I was talking to her about what are you doing, and she told me, well, I'm getting my business degree, like my MBA, and I'm doing some property management work to try and make ends meet. And of course, one of the properties she was referring to was the garage where the Google guys were working on Google. 
Oh my and, God. And wait, there's more just while we're telling stories. I've not heard this from Susan, but I've read it in the, in the press. The Google guys, when they had their, their products sort of ready to think about going to the marketplace, they went to her and essentially said, Susan, we don't know a lot of women. So we wanted to run these names and this logo by you to see what you thought about it, to explain what their product was. And she said, I don't like the logo or the name you've chosen, but on the list you've got, I think Google's a pretty good name. I think you ought to go with that. That's amazing. amazing. Something like employee number six at Google. I mean, it's just an amazing story of right place, right time. But she built it herself from there. I mean, she's a CEO and a real live leader in Silicon Valley. And her sister created one, two, three, and me. So I don't know what those, yes. what they had for breakfast, but you know. Well, it's a remarkable story. It, I didn't you know. know her. Uh, I, I'd never met her parents, but her father came to America after World War II, young Jewish immigrant from the chaos in Europe at the time came to America, became a physics professor at Stanford, and obviously taught his family the American dream of hard work and amazing. success. It's a really an amazing story about an immigrant family that came here and just had phenomenal success. And it's something we can all be very proud of. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Elizabeth Holmes is, you know, indicative of women in any field. And I think she's a con artist. She's probably like the biggest female con artist we've seen. That's true. Well, it can't yeah. have, I mean, guys can't have all the fun, right? They yeah, I mean, I think five years guys, is but... really a slap on the wrist. And if that's what she gets, it's going to make a lot of people in tech say, wow, I can I can bilk people out of mm -hmm. millions and millions of dollars. And, and that's all I'll get. That's, that's not you're bad. You're that argument a lot made to this judge saying, judge, if you don't make an example here, we're going to have this 20 more times in the next five years. And he's going to have to think long and hard about that because he knows Absolutely. a lot of people will be making decisions based on what kind of sentence there is in this case. The interesting part of this too, is I do think she had a brilliant idea and there are developments now in medical tech that are going in that direction. I think it was just too much dazzle over substance basically. And it's funny that the medical devices are going in that direction, self-testing, well, all of that kind of stuff. She said in her defense, I was trying to speak for the long term and where we wanted to go now. Some of that is obviously pretty rehearsed after the fact, but there's truth to that. Part of her was talking about where we want to go long term. It's just that's not what she actually said and did. But right. in terms of looking ahead to the long run, we don't we don't want this story and this one person who in hindsight was a con artist to derail people that really are trying to do good things and look towards the future. Absolutely. So you, have to, you have to be careful there too. Silicon Valley for all of its excesses has done fantastic things like this technology we're communicating on right now. You have to balance getting rid of the fraud with allowing people to get out there and raise money and toot their horn about their good ideas. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I do agree. I, I think that it's important that the judge set an example. Like in the Madoff case, you saw that. Mm -hmm. and, and it really shows people that if you do something like this, you're really going to go away and you're going to go away for, for a long, long time. And I, I, I fear that if she doesn't, the floodgates will open with other people trying to do the same thing. That's in a, fact, Laura and I are working on it. We're working on a blood testing technique. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we just, you know, cool million, David. That's a great you. idea. Yeah, I think yeah. You should, uh, we're, we're should, working on it. You should uh, try to find every former Secretary of State in the United States and see if you can get them on your board of directors. I mean, the word wants, it might work again. What the heck? Maybe move to another cabinet position. Go to secretaries of the interior or something. Kind of work your way through.
see what you can do. David, thank you so much. Absolutely, yes, and we will. No, it was a pleasure, and it was fun to tell stories on Susan, however you say her last name. I never. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, we, we have to send this to her. Yes, and yeah, Susan, yeah. if you hear this. At least she's still mad at me that I stole, I stole one of her Klondike bars out of the refrigerator. <laughs> David, got you're salty on about you're on tape. Klondike Stop. Bars. Stop, no. <laughs> that's right. I'll, yeah, by now, it's like, with inflation, that's like four or five Klondike bars now. So. <laughs> Susan, we'd All like right. to have you on if you hear this. <laughs> yes, uh, she'd be good. All right, y'all take care. Bye, take David. care. Bye, David. Bye, David. Bye, David. Bye, David.